0: It's been a long time since we've recorded, so I have a lot of recommendations. So I'm just going to get one out at the beginning. Uh, now I noticed I, I, I went to Costco yesterday. Uh, I had some spare time, and I keep a close eye on their organic juice. Have you ever noticed that coconut juice they have? That's like uh, uh, it's always pink, and on the is side, is it just the coconut water or coconut juice? Sorry, sorry, coconut water. And it, and it, it on the yes, side of it, it always have, says like, yeah, "Is yours?" It, it says, "Is yours pink?" And the answer is yes, it's always fucking pink. Like they, they put that label on there as if you're going to get a clear bottle. Anyways, that right. coconut water is delicious and I'm pretty sure it's killing me the amount of it that I drink. I, I there's no way that it's coconut water can be healthy. It's all natural, right? I mean yeah.
1: electrolytes and you're, you're like fully hydrated with all the right electrolytes. So you should feel good about
0: that. I'm I'm sure it's as, as all natural as sucking on a piece of sugar cane. Like, like you know, it's like a chili dog. Uh, but anyways, speaking of things that are probably elusively uh uh healthy, there is they now carry in a bolt of 3 the 32 fluid ounces of Bolt House Farms organic 100% carrot juice. And I got to tell you, this stuff is fantastic. I remember yeah. when I was in I you know, we we haven't recorded uh for several weeks because I've been uh doing some some family stuff and while I was in in Houston doing some family stuff, I bought a bottle of this at a, a Kroger. For those of you who live in Austin, Kroger is a grocery store that we do not have in the land of HEB, um, as, as far as I can right. tell. It's a very it's a it's you know, as a as a parenthetical thing, like there there's a if you're a lifelong H E B person, as I have, as I am, and you go into a Kroger or a Randall, it kind of feels like going from what it must feel like to go from like a Sears to an Apple store. You're like, whoa, I didn't know it was even possible for stuff to be this fancy. But, uh, you know, I, I think I think HEB is Android and like Kroger and Randall's are kind of like Apple. And for whatever reason, I, I prefer Android in this instance. Anyhow, I bought a bottle of this when I was in Houston and I think I drank the whole 32 ounces in probably 30 minutes. Big mistake. So Whoa <laughs> Well give us a
1: quick review. Like you said, that is like a sweet, a like, oh, sweet yeah, juice. Yeah. I, is it like, I mean, a, just a refreshing juice? What?
0: I think carrot juice is my favorite juice because it's sweet, it's kind of thick, it feels wholesome, but yeah, it's it's ultra sweet and it's it's really delicious. It says Is it kid friendly? Like if I gave
1: this to my kindergartner son, would he be like, yeah. Whoa, give I need some more.
0: I think I think they would like it. It it says that this bottle contains twenty four and a half carrots, the juice of <laughs> so Okay. Go down to Costco and get that for yourself. And I'm there. I'm do, not, do not drink it all in one sitting. You want to space it out. You should be able to have three sessions at, in, in a day with this bottle. <laughs> three sessions of carrot Juice. Got it. But Man, is it good. Well, excellent. well, Coach A,
1: I think um, we have taken a little hiatus here for several reasons. And uh, Matt Ray, still down under. He was here in Austin. I think neither one of us actually saw him, which, yeah. is, which is funny. And we then sent him back to Australia. Mm-hmm. So he'll be back on next week. And as, we, as loyal listeners know, Matt Ray does all the actual show prep. So without him, we are always left to figure out what we're going to talk about. And yeah. today, I was thinking we need to talk about why somebody – would take the plunge into work in product marketing and technical marketing because listeners of the show will know a few weeks ago, we did an episode talking about your history. And I think we kind of left off, we left it as an inadvertent cliffhanger because we just ran out of time. Uh, but you were an analyst, I think at Redmond And then you kind of took the turn back into the world of strategy and product marketing. And I thought it'd be a good place for this, this group of listeners to understand like, why would you do that? And, um, what you think of that experience. So why don't you take us from there and say, you know, why did you ultimately leave being an analyst and, and rejoin corporate America?
0: Sure. So, so, uh, uh, yeah, like I, I, I went back to listen to that episode to remember what I'd said. And first of all, there, there's, there's two pieces of feedback. One, uh, I got to stop interrupting people cause it's just annoying to listen to. Like I, 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 I have the sense of like, I always have something I want to get out and I have to like say it. And, uh, Kim, my wife has trained me well to not be rude like that, but I need to do that to the rest of the world because it's difficult to listen to. But anyhow, uh, the other thing was as, as I was, as I was gently rebuked. By James Governor, they actually did do a fair <laughs> amount of managing of me. I mean, I, 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 or, or I, should, I shouldn't say a fair amount. There was actually management that was occurring. <laughs> uh, but it was
1: so good that you didn't really notice it. That's yeah. I yeah,
0: it. yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think more more appropriately, the point I was trying to make is that the, the management style that they had and that I've subsequently had, or I should say that I subsequently like to, to have is, um, that they basically just set me up to manage myself with very little guidance uh because they they kind of they kind of gave me the principles of what i needed to do and just let me you know run wild so you know i was being hyperbolic anyhow so back back to the we kind of left off in the red monk job and i think this directly leads into your question because before i was i was doing the red monk job i didn't really have much of a notion of of marketing or anything like that uh and and really uh I think I what you find out in the analyst world is you have you have two customers. Well, you have like three. You have let's say three customers. One, there's like the financial world that you're writing to and doing things for, which is uh, you know, uh people who are trying to evaluate companies and their performance and how industries are performing and so you like you help inform them about the industry. Hence the term industry analyst. And then two, you're working with what they call end users or buyers or customers, people who are buying i t and services, and they're basically interested in reviews like a consumer report style thing for enterprise i t and then also advice about what to do with it, it's sort of like uh, if you imagine if you imagine uh, for the enterprise architect and above if there was an O'Reilly book publishing house, like to some extent, they have analysts help them with that and then third. Uh, you do a lot of work for vendors, which basically is uh, informing a little bit of their product management. Most vendors are, I would say, smarter about what's going on with their products than most analysts are. Usually the smaller the company, the better they are about knowing what's happening. But they often need lots of help like figuring out their marketing and basically how to tell their story and explain what they do. And so... At Red Monk, we mostly serviced, let's say, mostly the, at least when I was there, a lot of the third category, a lot of vendor work, because basically, uh, and I don't know what they do currently, but they, they didn't really charge for the second type. There were enterprises that we would have commercial engagements with, but most of it was just like the whole point of having free blogs and talking with people was that you kind of just, at least for my estimation, you sort of like give up on that market and, 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 uh, you basically aggregate all those people and you work with them for free. So I ended up doing a lot of work, uh, with vendors and, and Red Monk was very, uh, very good at walking the line between what people call pay for play, which is an interesting side conversation to have what that actually means and looks like. And, and just being generally helpful to, to marketers. And, and as I, as I was saying, like some of the advice that, uh, that Stephen O'Grady gave me was that like you're being paid to pay people what you think. And so in a marketing context, early on in Red Monk, what that m- amounted to was basically, uh, and I remember you and I used to talk about this, right? Like you need to, uh, one thing that would be interesting would be to be like the, the blackwell of, of the IT world, which is to say, you need to be a critic of all this IT marketing and tell people if you think it's believable and how they could better phrase it and if it's good or bad. And so from that stance, like a lot of the, the, the work, not all of it, but a lot of the work that I would do at Red Monk was, um, helping people tweak and think about how they talked about themselves and how they overall did marketing. And it was not only like, um, content marketing and not only like brand marketing, but also, Subtler things like positioning and how to find developers to talk to, and who your market was, and how that bleeds back in, into product and things like that. So, I'd never really so on done, that, done all of that. I was gonna say on that, Cote. I think that's that's a good you know
1: like essence of uh, you know something I think you and I sometimes talk about like product market fit, right? Which is like famous Mark Andreessen article, which I think it comes down to just really oversimplified. is like. Building products and growing markets that sought of, you know, need, user needs in an, an impressive way that users are going to go talk about, right? So I think as an analyst, one of the things I've often wondered, right, is analysts are, if you will, often, and they often complain about this, they're subjected to like hundreds, thousands of power. PowerPoints from different vendors. Like we hire analysts to come out, and you know, even if we say we're not going to do it, we end up putting them in a room for a day, and we usually show them lots of PowerPoints. This is actually I've been at many companies, and we've done this pretty much at every company. And what's interesting about that, I think, um, while it may be hard for an analyst to sub, you know, to endure, is if you if you're seeing all these presentations from all of these different vendors, inevitably I must think an analyst is like, well, uh, you know, they're all just the same. <laughs> or there or this one vendor really sticks out but none of you know what i mean there's like some kind yeah. of immediate cluster you're like these guys are really have it and none of these other guys really get it so when you're in as an analyst you know if that's true like how do you kind of walk the line of, like, providing guidance to this vendor without, you know, being overly negative? Like, hey, totally. there's nothing new here, and, you know, I don't think any of this is relevant, and I doubt you're going to be successful. Like, even if you're feeling that way, like, what do you say to your client at that point?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's, that's, a, that's a insightful question to ask because I remember uh, in the rare moments where I've managed analysts uh, – my, uh, my complaints of them basically amount boil down to what you were just saying is like, you gotta, you you can't just tell everyone that they're shit. Right. (laughs) Like, and, and I mean, that gets to the second thing that, that happened a lot at red monk and over time it happens is, um, as you're saying, like you, you sit through a lot of marketing and a lot of stuff. And I think this is analogous to when I, um, when I, when I've, I think it's pretty much all of them. When I read about lots of the writers that I admire, the characteristic you find about them is they're really good at writing, but as William Gibson put it, they're expert readers. Like they read everything all the time, constantly for decades. And so they have themselves been exposed a lot to the thing that they're creating. And if you think about it, what you were just outlining is like after several years, and I was an analyst for eight years, I think over the two firms I worked at, just think of the sheer volume of marketing content that you encounter. And not only marketing content, but uh, strategic thinking and product thinking. Like you, you see everything. So you have an appreciation of the thing being created. So um, once your head is full of all that, um, there are traps you can fall into, like you were just saying, is like, what's the new thing here? This is all a bunch of bullshit. And so, one, it's good you 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 develop this bullshit thing, right? Like, ah, oh, I've seen this movie three times before, and like I've even seen people the tone that people use and how they talk about it, and I know the questions to ask to see if this is genuine or if you just cut and pasted this off of the internet. I guess it would be copy and paste. Um, and so. Yeah, what you have to do is is in order to not come off as an asshole analyst, which uh a lot of them do, kind of smug and like all-knowing and and all of that kind of stuff, mostly just smug. You have to give people the benefit of the doubt where you're more like and this sounds pedantic, but you're more training the marketing people and and giving them a history lesson on how things are going and how what they want to do kind of can both be uh, spoken of in slides in a way that's convincing. It may be the same old stuff, but it might be convincing or how they can kind of build on the history of things that have come before them to, uh, to explain it. And like we were talking before we were recording about how, uh, new rounds of people come to marketing, um, basically developer stuff. And they always come up with new terms for it and new ways of doing it. Like, you know, in, in my part of the world, we'll call it cloud native and people talk about containers. And, you know, it's kind of an ongoing joke of our podcast here that like we'll, we'll encounter some new sort of container orchestration thing. And then I'll just try to grossly simplify it down to like we're just installing software on servers that run and talk to each other. And so analogously like in the software world right like at the end of the day pretty much all software is like i've got an operating system i've got a bunch of middleware and then programmers write stuff on top of it that runs and so in that sense like if you can distill down this all this marketing to like something simple uh you can help consult with people and have them put together a way of explaining it that's helpful and makes sense and is genuine um and like you know uh, I, I think, I think the joke that I always use a lot on this podcast is the first time that Mesosphere, uh, briefed me was very similar to the first time that three, three terror briefed me and they portrayed, and this is a, a good example of what you're saying is they each, in each instance, they portrayed what they had as some sort of like revolutionary new way of doing computing that was so brand new that they couldn't really even explain how it worked. Like they, they couldn't explain how the stack worked. And once you talk to them, it's like, well, you have your own customized Linux distribution, which you automatically dispro- deploy on a bunch of servers. Then you have a mechanism in your framework that takes the software and deploys it on each of those nodes with your Linux distro and controls the networking and make sure they can talk with each other. And then by nature of doing that, you have the benefits of lots of automation and which makes it more efficient and that's at scale and blah, 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 blah. So, you know you try to walk them back to just explaining why this mouse trap is better, not that they've invented a brand new mouse trap,
1: right. And I think that's one of the you know maybe the best or one of the 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 lines people walk. like not like being new to any industry is like everything in life is a strength and a weakness, right? Sometimes someone comes in with a brand new approach. That maybe is truly revolutionary, right? That is, or like a different way of viewing the problem that has that is different, that truly is different from everybody else. And mm-hmm. in that in that sense, like you know, kind of that less experience is better. Now, I think what you're what you're saying though, the, the fallacy there, the problem there, is to think you have that and not right, and be like you you know what you really kind of come across is cuz people can kind of come across the other way sort of uneducated don't really know what they're talking you know almost like yeah. don't know what they're talking about because they're they're saying what you think is like you know the most obvious thing in the world they're they're claiming it's some kind of a revolutionary product and i think that's you know when people are starting companies or entering new markets like you know an analyst is probably a good person to kind of you know you know give you that honest feedback yeah. like no this is a brand new approach and you've got something here versus like you probably should do some reading or like or at least know some of this history before you go out and try to convince the world that your thing is different.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think I think uh, just I'll, I'll try to be brief about it. But another good example of this is the whole uh, what we used to call NoSQL market. And, and you know, cloud, every innovation goes through this more or less. Um, but. What was interesting about the no SQL market, it was there was like all this talk about how it was this revolutionary big thing and you had to spend a lot of time figuring out, well, why is this better? And 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 in my version of the story, there's two reasons why it was better. One was the most pedantic basic one, is like, well, basically it's free. You don't have to go pay licenses to Oracle or Microsoft for a database. And that that was uh that was huge, right? That was a huge part of why my SQL was better. Now Assumption number zero is it works, which was early on a problem with no sql stuff and and uh, MysqL sorted that out but so one the the go to market or the the sort of the relation how you get money changes for good or you know it changes in a way that 's interesting so that's that's a part of, I, I read a blog entry recently where someone was like, it turns out product marketing fit is more about being able to collect money for your product. And it's like, I, I don't think you read the original source material well enough if this is an right. epiphany Go that back. you're having now. Um, <laughs> That's right. Go back. reread yeah. that. But whatever, right? So, uh But the second thing that I think that became important for NoSQL that once, and this is the kind of, I don't forget if I even gave it, but the kind of advice I would give in my head is that, what was valuable and is valuable no SQL stuff is that the schemas in your database were unstructured. And, and if, if you had, if, if you had experienced as a programmer dealing with databases, it's always a problem because relational databases think in this very unhuman way. And you always have to somehow like, Mess around and muck around with your the data in your program to fit in an optimized way into a relational database. And so it's a it's a hassle. And then upgrading and migrating it is a problem, whereas the unstructured schema nature of NoSQL databases were a much more natural fit for how people would think about uh, their data, which leads to all sorts of problems and inefficiencies and stuff like that. But essentially what it means is the benefit that you get is your programmers uh have they don't have to spend so much time dealing with rela- the the cognitive dissonance of relational databases which does all sorts of things right so it's these new capabilities that you get and so i think if you explain things in that in that way as new innovations come along here are the new capabilities you get. And if you're interested why you get those capabilities, that's a lot more convincing than like, you know, the razzle dazzle of like, this is a revolutionary approach and blah, blah, blah. And that's a lot of what um, I think, especially when I was at Red Monk and, and at 451, we would drive people more towards is like, just let's stop on slide number three there. And I want you to just like pragmatically explain why this is going to be better rather than focusing on like the, the Rasmus has of it.
1: Right. So that kind of takes us in. So, you know, you spend eight years in this analyst role, right? And you see, you know, thousands of PowerPoint slides, right? And then you sort of start making the leap over to being the one creating the PowerPoint slide for vendors, right. right? So I think you took, a, I think Dell, right? Dell is, yeah, yeah. is the next, so, so that's- one of the next jobs. So, so take us through, like, you know, one, why why did you decide to make the leap from the analyst world
0: to kind of being a critic, to being a creator, if you will? Yeah. And then, you know, why Dell? So, so I, I was, I was at Red Monk for, I think, six years to, to the calendar date, uh, something like that. My LinkedIn profile will tell it all. And, uh, and, and, and similar to, like, last we were discussing how I found, uh, lots of my other jobs, it was, it, you were involved yet again. Uh, I, somehow I had, um, someone had, um, when you're an analyst, people in, in a very coy kind of way, it's always annoying. They should just outright ask you, but in a coy kind of way are trying to recruit you. And I had gotten a, um, uh, an email or something. I forget how from someone who was looking to hire some strategy person. And then I sent it off. To, to someone that you knew, our, our friend Prabhakar, and he ended up getting a job, uh, at Dell working in this corporate strategy group instead. And I think, I think we had, he, he had some, a thank you lunch, which is always a nice touch. And I think you were there. We were at North by Northwest. I probably unadvisedly ordered a hamburger or something instead of a salad. <laughs> Who knows? Um, and, uh, we were sitting and he'd been on the job six months or something. And uh, at this point, I was, uh, I was looking around for a new job at Red Monk because, I, I, we had just uh, adopted my son and, uh, you know, I traveled a lot and like Red Monk never paid that well compensation wise. And basically like I needed to grow up and get an adult job. So I was kind of passively looking around for a new job. And I basically mentioned to Provoker at this lunch, like, well, I'm interested in a job. And so, you know, sooner it took about a month or so, but I ended up getting hired into this, uh, this corporate strategy group and, and just not to like uh, scurry away from Red Monk so long. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a big, uh, a big life decision on my part to, to move away from that because it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's still like, Compensation aside and traveling too much. If I only look inwardly, it was like one of the, the better jobs that I've had. I think the one I have now is the best one, but like it was a great job and I was very sad to leave it. And, and Stephen and James were great about it. They were uh, very understanding, and supportive, and they weren't asshats at all about it. Although I did email and send back my Roland R09 recorder. I should have kept that, but uh, I was really <laughs> honest. Uh, anyway. Nice. Cause you can't buy that anymore. And that was the best handheld audio recorder ever so i got hired uh by this guy matt Wolken, uh into uh working at dell and so you know the first question people often ask is is like why dell and there's you know uh i guess i i mean i essentially work sort of there now um but yeah, I mean Dell doesn't have that good of a reputation amongst the people that I hang out with, right? I mean that there's uh, uh their their inability to put out a Linux desktop sort of like makes make which we can get back to in a little bit, like kind of makes a lot of people that we talk with write them off and they just seem goofy to the people that we talk with. But one, they were in Austin and I didn't I wanted to stop traveling, which I pretty much did. Uh, two, they, they paid extremely well, right? Like, I think I probably doubled my overall compensation instantly, uh, by going there. Um, and, you know, it's like a normal big boy job, like not a not a weird job like Red Monk um, and a mainstream job, a straight job working with the players. Right. You don't have to explain it to uh, your friends and stuff like, yeah, no, yeah. is right away. Yeah. Got it. And, and then and then but then the other thing uh, that made it easy to get over all of this was that I I I didn't really know what this job was, but it was basically like we were going to figure out how to start up the software group in Dell. Working on strategy and acquisitions and stuff like that. Um, and then maybe also do a little bit of cloud stuff. So it was basically doing strategy in its purest form, which, which was awesome, right? Like it, it made a lot of sense. Um, and the job did indeed turn out to be exactly that. So I, I only worked at Dell for like, like two years, um, which is, which man, it seemed like a long time, but in retrospect was very short. And while I was there, I did work, um, when I was there, there, there actually was a separate uh, st- corporate strategy group. I think they've since folded that into finance. Um, but there was this guy, Dave Johnson, who had worked at IBM and other stuff, and he had this group under Michael Dell. And there were different disciplines of software, hardware, and services. And I was part of the software discipline of just figuring out, what, along with Prabhakar and this guy, Matt, what we should do for Dell Software. So that job was really fun um, because there's three main things, uh, that the, the new skills that I picked up there. One of them was, um, and I have a little talk that I do about basically surviving and thriving in big companies, right? Like all, all of the PowerPoint and MBA jokes I make are based on this job. And there really is like a, a culture and a, um, as, as, as some people would put it, a social capital of how you work inside a company and are successful for it. And I'd never really been exposed to that at a company, maybe for like 10 minutes when I was at BMC. But really like you you learn really quickly how to deal with people and what not to say in meetings and who you've got to like do your, your pre-alignment with like all these things we make fun of and you learn how they're valuable and how to do them. And that, that was, that was pretty interesting. And then second, um, you learn about how the internals of a vendor operate, um, and what their business is like and how they function and all of the stuff that you don't really get from the outside. Uh, and, and part of that is, is understanding kind of the dynamics of the software industry, though, you know, I, I think I had a good handle of that from the analyst world. But another part of that is I had access to all the other analyst stuff, which was it's interesting. It was interesting to go read Gartner and Forrester and IDC and to talk with them and see how other analysts operate. But then third, because there was a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions or M&A involved, I got involved in a lot of those kinds of projects. Right. So you some time with
1: – uh, I was going to say the investment bankers, right? They're yeah. Like
0: another – Like community. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So like we would, you know, internally you have your own iBankers who are the... Uh, I forget how we w- we we would call them. They weren't corporate strategy people. They were corporate development, corp dev, right? And corp they dev, yeah. they they were like straight up like MBA types who were masters at Excel and could put together deals and stuff like that. And then you work with sort of like some external iBankers. bankers. But what's most interesting is when you get together with a meeting who's basically a company that's shopping themselves around, and you're in the big boardroom with the bottled water and the the catered lunch, and you're kind of going over their deal deck and. And their book and they're trying to convince you of like, well, how they, what the kind of company they are and why they would fit into your business and all of that. And I don't know, it's just an interesting side of the world. To yeah. See I think, how you know, I feels.
1: think, you know, the audience would be interested in hearing like, well, so, cause I, I think of it like a lot of times people say sell side by side, like, you know, investment banking is obviously lumped together a lot. And I think what people often don't understand about it is like the people working at investment banks are largely salespeople, right? They come totally. in, with very beautiful presentations, really the best presentations you've ever seen. I I mean, you're just like, (laughs) you have never seen PowerPoint like this. And you're like, wow, I wish I could create this PowerPoint. And they go through, right? They go through like uh, basically inventory, right? They're representing certain companies and they're, they're both selling you on like why the company is good and then they're providing you a lot of data in really nice PowerPoint about, you know, that you then can use, right? Then your buy side guys, which is your corp dev guys, they're, they're they're sort of like, okay, we're looking, we're shopping for a house, we're looking at lots of houses, and they're the guys that can kind of take those PowerPoints and plug it into their own models, right? And figure out yep. what is Dell in this case. So uh, I don't know. I always think it's fun to demystify, because <laughs> investment banking just sounds so, so much more
0: sophisticated than like, well, I'm here to sell companies and I'm here to buy companies. Yeah. But uh, it I, really is simple. I think, I think, I think with most nouns in banking, like you should just ignore them totally. Like, like (laughs) the phrase, the phrase investment banker, like doesn't really mean anything. Like, it sounds like you would be picking things to invest. No, like your portrayal is exactly accurate. And and I don't mean any of this to be demeaning. I think they serve a valuable function, but they're the analogy that you're alluding to there is, yeah, they're, they're basically like. I would think of them as a real estate agent on steroids, right? Like they have an inventory of assets, houses or companies, and they're trying to gussy them up and find buyers who would be interested in them. And, and they, they basically collect a percentage of the sale usually. I mean, there's various ways they get paid, but they're incented to move product. And so that's why their presentations are so good and they go over things. I mean, they, um, as you're saying, I mean, you, you would often get these, um, Uh, spiral bound notebooks of market studies and they would, they would distill down a market, which happened to include the assets they have to sell and just have as many pages as you want, probably put together by like junior people working late into the night, uh, about like what's going on in this market, what the potential is, how it fits with your company. They're just trying to sell you on, on buying these things. And then the other side of what they do is an R in our corporate development, people would do this is they're basically negotiating the deal and trying to set a valuation and all that, you know, negotiate all the terms for everything. Also, as a real estate broker would agent would do.
1: All right. So you, so you get this like strategy lesson and like a little bit of corp strategy and you kind of get the world of investment banking. And, you know, I'd be interested in, I think one of the, the benefits of a job like this though, too, is like, you probably start to get a sense of like, what are the limitations of a corporation about what it can and cannot do yeah. compared to an analyst? Because analysts often, especially if they've been out of the corporate sector for a while, can often forget that, you know, these are big entities, right, that can't always do what may seem obvious. I don't know. What was your take
0: on yeah, that, you no, know, no, getting no. exposed to that? No, I I think I think I think what you're going at is exactly right. So the there, there, kind of what I was talking about was almost the let's call it the first half of the job that I had. In the second half, uh, when I was at Dell, I um I worked for this guy named uh, Namdi, who had been uh, Michael Dell's executive uh, assistant, which is basically like um his his special projects person. And and Namdi went over to lead the public cloud business at Dell, and I'd gotten to be a good friends with him. And so I shifted over with him as, as often happens when you build up alliances in a company. And he was actually doing two things. He ran the business of Dell's public cloud. So he had a P and L and he was the GM of it. And he was also still in charge of the corporate cloud strategy for Dell. So we, we worked on those two things. So that exposed me to a lot of what you're saying is like, I was, I was in, I was on his, um, executive staff or whatever. Um, it's also the first time that I managed people. I I ended up managing some people, which not a good idea for me, Uh, but it was interesting. Um, uh, And so I saw like how the business runs and like you're saying, the limitations that a business has and how they think about themselves and and, you know, all the stuff. And it was interesting to see. Uh, when you're in sort of like the weekly meeting of how this business is function, how our investments are going, how, how our spend is going as far as building things up, the limitations we're encountering, dealing with customers. And then you married that up, like in the very next meeting with like, and here's grandiose strategy. Like, it was really nice to see uh, that putting, especially at a large company, putting what seems like obvious strategy in place is really hard. Like, Going from a PowerPoint that circles the the part of the market and the three priorities you should do down to actually getting hundreds and hundreds of people to do that across a large customer base is extremely difficult. And you start having an appreciation for a lot of like, you know, halo effect stuff we talk about where most of the success of, of medium to large size organizations is actually in figuring out how to motivate people to do the job. <laughs> and, right. and and also, uh, and, the, and the first thing of that is making sure that you have good communication with all the middle management and that they believe in you and trust you and want to do things. And we would have both of those in this situation, right? Like things would come and go as far as uh, the frozen middle or the thawed middle or things like that. And you went, I mean, I'm being a little vague because whenever you're working for a, a vendor, like you don't want to reveal too much about what you've done with them. But like, you know, you get exposed to like all the stuff that I make fun of and, and comment on and how the chief thing that's important is is when you move out of a strategy role is like, what's actually, what can you actually accomplish? And what can we actually do with the assets that you have? And to sum up, like you really appreciate um a lot of um for whatever he has on his bad side, you appreciate people like Donald Rumsfeld. And you see that, like, this dude was probably an awesome large organizational manager. Because, like, a lot of what he says, like, even one of his more famous things, right? Like, you don't go to war with the army you want. You go to war with the army you have. is very representative of how you get a large organization to do something. You figure out yeah, uh, working on totally. what you have. And even going back to the strategy side and saying, like, nope, we can't do that. Like... With the people that we have and the organization that we have, there's no way we can accomplish that. So let's pull that's back the, and think about. I was gonna say that's the help.
1: real. um and there's one thing
0: I think that's misunderstood about corporate America,
1: it's 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 kind of this perception a lot of times that people on the outside of any company, whether it be their a competitor or just something else, will say, "Well, like it's obvious this company should do X," and then they kind of think that nobody in the company like has That's any idea that they should do X right they just like <laughs> yeah. wow like if only you know if only uh, Microsoft would build an iPhone right yeah. and it's like wait a minute like if you think about it and you work in large organizations like most of the time I'm not saying there are times when people don't know right but most of the time the company is you know at least average people and they're smart you know some of them are certainly smart and like there will be a well understood um, inside the company that hey we should really go do X yeah right? but it is very but you know, m- navigating this organization to do it is maybe impossible, nearly impossible. Yeah, so and, 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 I, I and think- that's just always like, you know, that's maybe the just to finish off here, yeah. just the critique of analysts, right? Sometimes it's like, yeah, you know, I, we know that this new phenomenon is happening. It's just at the same time, we're managing like a multi-billion dollar revenue stream of maintenance and And we've got these limitations and we while we want to do that and we're trying to do it, there are just some constraints here that, you know, we can't just walk over and be like, oh, we're starting a new company and doing it. Right. And it's uh, but we know. Right. So it's a hard sometimes it's hard to accept
0: that. And and as an example of that, one of the other things I worked on um, was this thing called Project Sputnik when I was at Dell. And without getting too long winded for whatever reason, I ended up as one of the three people on the, um this internal innovation fund that, that Michael Dell started up and we would have people come pitch us like we were VCs and we would give them some amount of money to pursue what they were doing. And there were actually two things we accepted, but the, the one that was the most broadly successful was this thing called project Spudnik that our, our friend Barton George. Uh, uh, yeah. It's his baby. Right. And mm-hmm. it was basically going back to what I was alluding to. It was like, Hey, Dell should have a Linux desktop for developers, right? Like to your point seems really obvious, right? Like surely all you need to do is kind of like uh send a new USB drive to the factory and they'll just install that and then you make a new web page of where to buy it. And It's a really simple idea, and we even had, like, Canonical was, like, tripping over themselves to help us out with this, right? They were committing a lot of resources to um, making sure there was a version of the operating system because there's, like, a lot of back-end profit they could make off of it. But they were were very helpful. Like, we had everything ready to go, and what took months and months, probably maybe even a year, it was probably, like, six or eight months, is just, like – figuring out the various global supply chains so that you could get this software on this one top type of laptop and ship it and also collect money for it and sell it was just like crazy right like it was crazy difficult and there were some things that it was eye-rollingly difficult for but a lot of it was just because the structures in place like couldn't deal with this aberration of stuff right like and you know, I, I remember we, uh, we were lucky. I mean, part of what was nice about this internal thing was like, you could always be like, this is Michael Dell's money. And then people would put you on their, their agenda, but right. that, that was actually a lot less effective than you would think it would be. Um, yeah, cause people hear that all the time. Yeah. Right. Exactly, I mean, the, exactly. the quoting the executive who's not in the room, that yep, executive, yep. once I'm done is maybe the, like the most overused yep, thing yep, in yep. corporate America. And, and, you know, what, what you have to do is have the executive, either be in the room or send someone an email like just exactly just invoking them is not useful but you know i remember we would I, at one point uh, you know we were in the meeting where they were determining among many other things, which stickers would be on the, the, the palm rests of laptops, which on one hand was really depressing, just because no one likes those stickers. And then two, it was almost like, Oh my God, I'm in the machine, right? Like it was, it was kind of an <laughs> awesome moment of like, I, this is the thing. Yep, like this is Co- how it goes, right? At Costco's <laughs> worldwide over the next six months, I was in the meeting where it was decided which stickers would be there. Um, yep. but, but yeah, so, so like you had to go through all these things of like, like at, at, to, to wrap up the story, I remember at first, the only way, because of whatever weird ERP stuff, the only way you could buy the laptop was if you somehow found the small business page in Europe or something, and you could go buy the laptop for the first few months. And it was just, it was just really weird. Cause, you know, you've got like taxing and all this stuff that you have to set up, but eventually project because, and Barton did most of this work. I just kind of tagged along, uh, and, and suggested to him how to make better slides. But you, event nowadays, it's a full fledged product and you can buy it globally and anywhere. But it took it took a couple of years to actually get that done, which and now, thankfully, they have it. But it kind of points to the thing you're saying is like getting something done in a large organization uh, takes time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, this is where, you know, my my favorite, um, you know, outsider comment. And I've been guilty of making it, but it's the, it's just the funniest and most often when used is someone saying about another, another website, usually coming company website is like, wow, this website sucks. It should really do X, right? And just say, it's like, you know, I'm sure there are many people at the company that understand the limitations and the, uh, you know, uh, around that website. And I know for a fact, there are many reasons they can't change it, you know? And, um, yeah. and it's just like, if you've ever been in any organization, like the website, um, it, it becomes this, uh, like, I don't know, this almost, uh, it's almost like a counseling tool. The website becomes this thing where everyone can kind of go to it and like use it to fight or like (laughs) vent to themselves. Like I know this page sucks. I'm trying to make it better. Or why does, you know, know, my product would be great if only this web page would be changed. And, you know, it's just a great, you know, it's like the physical thing, although it's not physical, of course, it's the thing that everyone can point to and almost have like a group therapy session around. So, so I just would make a blanket statement for everyone. Like most people know, the limitations of their website and it could be better. Totally. They're trying to fix it. They are doing their best to fix it.
0: Yeah, no, that's... It
1: probably won't be fixed in the amount of time that you think it should be
0: fixed. That's a good example. It makes me think of two things. One, like, the opposite uh, of that, a website that you can always change to match your needs is is almost equally as worse. Like, a a while ago, there was a uh, Austin startup here in the systems management space, and their CEO was reviled because he would go in at night, I should say, they... To mask the gender, but he would he would go in at night and just change the website all of a sudden. And so people would come in the next day and be like, oh, so now this is what we're doing. Um And so, you know, I think I think another thing is, you know, I was talking about using like smoke as a sort of signal, so to speak, of what's going on. Like, I, I think it is marginally fair when you look at a tech company to kind of evaluate their website holistically as a sign of how how much they have their shit together with respect to as a group understanding what their strategy and their purpose is right like if you go to a website and you're kind of like i still have no idea what this company does it probably means that collectively the company has no idea what it does either right individuals might know but like it, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of effort and shared culture and and let's say Uh, functioning functioningness for a website to properly represent what a company does.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think that's just the old, you know, it takes a lot of work to make things simple. And I think you're right. And I think if, you know, it would be great as a tool of management, right, to instead of critiquing the website, which is done everywhere by everybody, if I think of managers were very self-reflective at any level, and we're like, you know, part of the problem here is like, you know, the website actually reflects the current uh, understanding of the company of what we do. And if you're dissatisfied with that, it isn't just about editing a web page. It's usually like we've got a lot more alignment that we're going to do. And that's not going to happen in like one meeting, right? That's yeah. going to happen over a period of time. Well, Cote, listen, we, as usual, we're out of time. We didn't get quite to the end. So we're going to leave this as an open-ended cliffhanger for those following along in the Cote episodes. The next time we do this, Cote, we'll, we, will, we will talk the plunge from strategy into uh, technical marketing. Mm. Um, but we'll leave that you know out there so people know to come back and listen. But while, of course, everyone wants to come and download our, our podcast and listen to us, sometimes they wanna come see you in person. So where are you gonna be next that they can actually go out and see you give a talk in person?
0: So I'll, I'll be, uh, I'm doing the, the, the second day keynote, I think. I think it's, it's whatever, it's the first talk. Uh, um, at DevOps Day Charlotte, which I think is uh, – I should have looked this up. It's at the beginning of February. I feel like it's its not impinging on my wife's birthday, so it's sometime after the 4th and 5th. But I'm just going to talk hurriedly here. You can get 20 okay, – I think so it's, it's no, February is it 25% 6th, off? February what, what, do people get money off for attending? Yeah. Or? So, so if you want to come, you can get 25% off if you register with the code SDT, like Software Defined Talk. Uh, and I think maybe we're even listed as a community sponsor, but, uh, I believe they repealed that law about which toilet you have to use. So they don't have that going anymore. And if they did, then just be careful. That you don't get prosecuted if you end up going and <laughs> always check. Does this bathroom have urinals? Then you can figure out which one it is. That's the, that's the heuristic that's that I the use. Magic. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, always all kinds of talks, all, all kinds of tips
1: here on software defined talk.
0: All yeah. Right, well, and and I think, I think the talk I'll be giving there is the, my, my 2017 version of the talk called, uh, not actually a DevOps talk, which I haven't put together yet, but yeah, you just go to, de- you know, go to the devopsdays.org and click on Charlotte and then you can register with 25% off if you use the code SDT. Well, good. All right.
1: Well, and, um, on today, I'm going to go ahead and just transition directly into my own recommendations. We've been away for a while, so I actually have a bunch of recommendations, but I'm going to try to cue them up uh, for the next few episodes because as we get back into our weekly recording cycle. But I thought today I would give two different ones. One is a, a plug for a, a colleague of mine. She just wrote uh, an O'Reilly book called Prototyping for Designers. Developing the best digital and physical products. Mm-hmm. So uh, there will be a, an Amazon link there. If you're, uh, you know, it's not just uh, although it is says prototyping for designers, I actually find prototyping to be one of the more fun uh, aspects of any product development, especially if you're just willing to do like paper prototyping or just like you know use a, a pen and build it out, which I've done multiple times now, and it is really the cheapest, fastest way to like oh, wow, I had no idea that this was what you really thought, right? So uh, that would be my one prototyping um, comment. But then if you want to learn more about how to do it and you know, get really, really good at it, you should read that book. It's an O'Reilly book. It has uh, some kind of animal On uh, on it, my uh, the author she told me I was like, well, how do they pick the animals? And so she told me the story that for a while O'Reilly picked like endangered animals, but then there was like they ran out. So now there's a whole process you go through, like you submit the animals you want, and then they like they had to figure it out. So uh, so I guess maybe for everyone writing an O'Reilly book, like make sure to write your book before they run out of animals. I
0: don't know when that's gonna happen, but there is some finite limit. So get on that. They'll have to start moving on to like uh, sea slugs. I think there's a yeah, lot of Yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, they're getting pretty obscure. Like, when you start looking at it, you're like, wow, they're, just, they're far down into the animal kingdom. So, you know, just just remember that. And then the other one, I just thought it was appropriate. I mean, today here in the United States, right, January 20th, Inauguration Day. I'm not going to say too much about that other than to say that One of the podcasts I enjoyed during the election cycle was uh, Keeping It 1600, which was um, a bunch of uh, former Obama staffers talking about politics, kind of like from an insider's perspective. And they um, were, I guess, fairly successful um, with that podcast. They have spun off, you know, if they will, they've created their own podcast outside of the Bill Simmons Network. It's called Pod Save America. So if you go to iTunes or Really, the preferred um, podcast player of software-defined talk, right, is uh, um, Overcast. Uh, You can go in there and search for Pod Save America, and you'll hear some insightful commentary about politics and what's going to be happening. So, I think it's a good a good way to stay informed about American politics, and I've enjoyed it. So, check that one out.
0: Yeah, you must have. Go ahead. I I I noticed they had an interview with Obama on there. I, I think they. I yeah, used it, to work it, for him, so I guess uh, it's easy to get yeah. that. I guess he officially gave
1: his last uh, pr- uh, interview as president to them, and it's
0: good. I mean, kind of it's very
1: reflective of lots of the stuff uh, that ha- happened. And just a bonus, you know, a couple of bonus recommendations. Frontline did an excellent uh, two-part series on um, the election and. Um, um, and it's just, it's, you know, like everything frontline does, I think is great, but those are just especially great. So a couple political things to, to provide the time over a book on, uh, designing and prototyping, you know, if you're starting a new product and in Cote, I'm like you said, I'm sure you have many recommendations from the holidays. What's on your mind?
0: So I'll, I'll, I'll recommend two things. One. So last, last time, the three of us together, I think we talked about shoes at some point. So I decided on a shoe. And uh, it was just by coincidence. I, I went to go look at some shoes at Nordstrom and I was like, I, I'm not into any of these. Uh, and then I, and then I was at the mall and I walked into the Clark store and I was looking around and, and there are many nice shoes there. Uh, and, and I think I'm heavily influenced by the fact that Ghostface killer was always talking about dying Clarks. So I thought Clarks <laughs> were something to, to be interested in, but I settled on this, this slip on shoe called the Clarks men's trapel form slip on loafer. Now, Reading it, I wish it didn't say loafer, because that sounds terrible. But it's a great shoe. It's very comfortable. It's uh if you order it on Amazon, it's only like eighty-five dollars, they'll charge you like hundred and twenty in the store or something. But it's 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 a good shoe. I would encourage you to go into the Clark store and try them on to find your right size and you can deal with the skinny, skeevy salespeople they have there. But uh I like it. It fits all my criteria. It looks nice enough to like be in a business meeting if you're in the kind of like part of the stratosphere i'm in and you can just wear it every day it slips on it's good stuff and the other thing i would recommend is uh if you go to costco they have this uh they have this hatch green chili sauce at the moment i don't know how long they're gonna have it i might need to, to buy it again but you you uh you look at the recipe and it's only hatch green chilies vinegar and uh and i think some salt Magically, there's no sugar in it, which is always a problem. So many good things out there that have, have salt in them. But it's like basically like, uh, New Mexico hatch green chili in a, this giant jar. And it's, uh, it's actually pretty spicy. It's, a, it's a good, I, I, I put it in everything that I have and you should just go, go buy one of those. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's the 505 Southwestern Hatch Valley flame roasted green chili. Medium. I, I, I cower to think what hot is. So with that, with with that, as always, this has been Software Defined Talk. You can find the show notes for this episode at softwaredefinedtalk.com dot com slash eighty five, and it would be great. If you like this episode to uh if you're an overwatch, just hit that little recommend thing. It's also good if you just word of mouth recommend it to people through Twitter or Facebook or just while you're having some enjoying some hatch green chili with them. Uh, but it's always good to spread this around and help us get uh more and more exposure and, and get in front of people who may not know about it, but would like it. Also, if you go into iTunes and you leave us a star rating or even leave a review, that would be wonderful. I think we're up to like 15 or 16 reviews now, which is heartening to read. Uh, we're basically around like 3,000 downloads an episode, which I feel like has happened over the past six months. So that's wonderful. It's, it's good. And we get, we get good feedback from people in uh, Twitter. So with that, uh, find the show notes at softwaredefinedtalk.com and we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.